we have the treat of hearing from our very own Peter Evis, a journalist from New York Times, award-winning journalist, I would say. And, uh, you know, he's so cool. And that British accent, you know, I just so envy his British accent. Everything he says sounds so credible. But anyway, <laughs> here it? he is. Yes, thank you, Charles. Thank you. Straight from the failing New York Times. There you go. <laughs> um, good morning. Uh, afternoon. Uh, morning still. Um, thank you for making it out in the rain. And uh, I have been here, I mean, for 22 years now in the United States, and I still have something of a, of a British accent, don't I? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, it's funny that you should mention the singles group, because, like, when I got here, I started going to a church, and, like, I started to feel like I liked this woman at my church. Um, and, you know, I'd only been there, like, two weeks. And I was like, you know... Do I make a move now, or do I do, do I leave it? I don't want to be known as the guy who just shows up and starts like you know the church shark, you know like. And I was like, stuff it. She's like, really hot. I'll just go for it. And then we ended up getting married. So you know, so that should be an encouragement to go to that lunch. Okay. <laughs> um, I'm not saying everything will work out quite as quickly, but you know, you got to get things moving. Come on. Um, so. Anyway, um, yeah, so I'm, I'm not like a staff member here, but I'm like, a, you know, like in the, an integral member of this church. I don't know if that's true or not, but I like to think it is. And um, I've been part of it for a while, and Charles and Carolyn and John and Sarah let me have the opportunity to talk sometimes when we have our sermon series, and that's why I'm up here, and I like doing it. That's the other reason, and... We are in the middle of a series of talks called When Walls Come Down. And the whole framework for this is kind of exciting. What we're trying to do with this is sort of identify some of the walls that we put up as people, as societies, um, and look at how it makes it much harder for us to experience the good things in life. And, and then we're looking at how God wants to sort of like tear down those walls, okay? Um, if you recall, if you were here right at the very first talk, Charles gave this sort of inaugural talk for When Walls Come Down, and um, he s sort of showed how it's God's desire, God's vision, God's promise to build a new creation uh, starting today um, in which the barriers that create injustice and isolation and self-hatred start to come down. That's a promise from God, okay? That's a, that's a promise you can take to the bank. And we know that because um, Paul says this in the letter to the Galatian church. There is no longer Jew or Gentile, slave or free, male and female, for you are all one in Christ. That verse is as true today as it was when Paul wrote it. You know, we are, we are seeing amazing things happening, like the Me Too movement where, you know, Male or female, there's some of the big barriers and walls are being uh, attacked there for in many good ways. Like there's some more equality and fairness, um, uh, you know, encroaching in those areas. And God is at work a lot to get walls down, okay? And we build up walls in our relationships, our personal relationships as well. It's not just a societal thing. And if you remember, Charles and Carolyn both gave separate sermons um, a couple weeks back. And they talked with admirable openness about the challenges that they have 
faced as Charles deals with having a serious long-term back injury. And I think their openness was very helpful for many of us. And so if you haven't um, listened to those talks or you weren't here for those talks, I strongly suggest you go back and listen to them because they're very good for sort of understanding how you do relationships through long periods of trial. They were very helpful for me. Now, <clears throat> you know, what we do as a sort of sermon-making team is that, like, you know, like, well before we actually start the series, we get together and talk about what the sermon series should be and what it should entail and what it should contain. And um, so I went to that meeting, um, and then we sort of talked about some of the ways we divvy it up. But we didn't make any strong decisions, final decisions, and I sort of left the meeting. And then I got an email saying that my topic was going to be egotism. <laughs> I was like, that's interesting. I was like, maybe the reason that they gave me egotistical, egotism, whatever, is because I'm an expert at it. And, you know, perhaps a disguise that, you know, that I'm, you know, that I'm not an egotist, and maybe that I, I didn't push back. I was really meek. I was like, yeah, I'll talk about that. Yeah, that's fine. Yeah, I'll, t I'll, t I'll take that on board. I, I, know, I can do that. Yeah, I'll dig deep. It's not something I know that well, but I'll uh, try, you know. <laughs> so, you know. This is me talking about egotism today, okay? And um, first of all, I want to start out with this idea of ego, okay? I'm just defining ego today as a personal sense of worth and identity, okay? For this talk, I don't know if you're a psychologist or you've done great amounts of work. For my talk, I'm just describing ego in a very ego today. No. Um, and describing <laughs> ego as a personal, solid sense of our own identity and worth. Okay, and I'm also going to stick my neck out and say right away that having a solid sense of personal worth and identity is a good thing, an unequivocal good thing, all right? Everybody needs to have a healthy ego. We need to love ourselves. And that's something we kind of already know at the river because over the years, we've had this great sort of framework for sort of understanding what life with God can be. We say that when we're, when we build this faith with Jesus, we can deepen our connections to one, God, two, other people, and three, what's the third one? ourselves, right? So we know there's that aspect of faith where we, f we should feel deeper and deeper, more deeply connected to ourselves. And so, um, you know, being connected to God is something we talk about, and being connected to other people is something we talk about. But when we talk about being connected to ourselves, at least for some of us, um, it might feel like less important ground. I mean, and you can understand why when you read through the Bible, you sort of see Jesus saying things like, you know, deny yourself and come follow me. Or you see Paul say, you know, he calling himself, <coughs> excuse me, a slave for Christ. And you sort of think to yourself, wow, how much room for ego can there be when you're being called to deny yourself? How much, you know, place for like a, a strong sense of self and identity can there be when you're called to be a slave for Christ like Paul did? I mean, you sort of have those thoughts, but there can be. And there should be, okay? And this is my first big point for today, is that over the long run, I don't think it's possible, and I, this is my experience, um, and I'll sort of show it from the Bible in a second as well, but over the long run, I don't think that we can be considerate, conscientious, uh, loving Christians if we don't look after ourselves, okay? 
Um, in fact, I think it goes beyond just faith and church. I think that our, you know, like in our marriages, in our jobs, in our families, in our friendships, um, they can become really difficult and a struggle if we don't have and maintain a strong sense of our own personal worth and identity, if we don't have solid egos. And I think that this is something that I've noticed over the years of being a Christian, um, is that people of faith have to be especially careful about with this whole idea of self. You know, I think that some people who are you know, drawn to a life of self-denial, they're natural, they're sort of, they've become accommodators of other people. Um, when they find faith, they're like, wow, you know, this, this self-denial thing, it looks like it's important to faith. I mean, I kind of feel that in my life, and so, yeah, it, it, this is good, you know. Um, and, you know, the self-denier can go day-to-day being in, in a relationship where the other person needs more care, more attention than they do. Um, they might get a sense of purpose from being needed, uh, from serving this other person. And at times it might feel stressful or maddening, and you might have a big fight or something and say, look, I'm being exploited. But what you do is you find yourself settling back into the old ways of accommodating that person. And if that's something, a place that you've been in, and I've definitely been in that place myself, then you know, faith with its you know, talk about self-denial and stuff like that makes it sort of feel like that that accommodating nature is, is um, a good thing, and often it isn't, okay? So we have to be really careful as people of faith sometimes. I've also noticed um, that religion can, can make us egotistical or it inflames our egotistical aspects. And again, this is something that I've been, you know, you know in a position to you know, do myself. I mean, let me just say quickly, I should make this clear that, you know, ego is good. Uh, we need a strong sense of personal worth and identity, but egotism is not good. Um, and that, by egotism, I mean like when everything in life is like me, myself, and I. Um, you know, ego, and I find that sometimes you know, uh, faith is good for egotistical people because it gives them a special place to be assertive, to be applauded, uh, to get the praise that they need. Um, you know, religion also often creates these walled-off communities, um, which we're not trying not to do here, obviously, um, where people can assume you know, an egotistical stance over other people. Their faith may, may feel like more superior. They can judge other people. They, they feel like their faith journey is special, unique, has some sort of singular brilliance or a greater seriousness or moral depth and they 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 like faith because it gives them a sense of like standing and superiority um i've been there too and and i i'm pretty certain that you know the accommodators and the egotists are not just like that in church they're probably like that outside of church in their families or in their workplace in non-faith settings um and 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 creating the same sort of problems as they would inside a church now, here's something um, that probably all of us know, is that over the long term, we cannot be happy or, or fulfilled as self-deniers, nor can we be truly happy as egotists, okay? I've noticed um, that self-deniers, people are constantly accommodating other people in their relationships. They end up feeling trapped and tormented, um, and they often bury their pain for their entire lives. They just live like this subjugated life. Um, and then, you know, inveterate egotists, they, they also feel miserable. And they can't create any sort of lasting, <coughs> meaningful contentment or fulfillment. And <coughs> it's actually probably worse for the egotists, I think, because I was reading an article recently in The Atlantic magazine. And it talks about, um, 
you know, like what happens to people who, uh, when they get power in their life, when they, often you find that like people who have power, like they're the top of a certain organization or a group or something, um, they usually get there either because they were egotistical or they become egotistical because they have this position. And anyway, these researchers at Berkeley did this long-term study and they found that people who have powerful positions are at serious risk of losing parts of their character that are absolutely crucial for maintaining healthy relationships. The article goes like this. It said, subjects under the influence of power, this professor found in studies spanning two decades, acted as if they had suffered a traumatic brain injury, becoming more impulsive, less risk-aware, and crucially, less adept at seeing things from other people's point of view. It's fascinating, right? Like part of their brains shut off. And so today, I'm sort of, I'm going to say that we need something that I'm calling the considerate ego. Okay. Now, the considerate ego is, is capable of empathy, kindness, and faithfulness. And one reason that the considerate ego is capable of those things is that it just recognizes they're good. They're like, yeah, those things make relationships work well, right? Um, uh, and it, the considerate ego is also, also has the standing. It has a sense of self-worth. And so it, 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 it also says to the person who has a considerate ego, you should expect those things from other people. You should expect other people to be empathetic, to be kind, and to be faithful to you. It should also flow in the other direction, right? And now the considerate ego doesn't say, okay, well, if I don't see this, this, and this, I'm just going to tear up this relationship and walk away. It doesn't do that. But over the long term, um, the considerate ego is okay about opening up a discussion about imbalances in the relationship. It says, look, these things have to flow in both directions. Kindness has to flow in both directions. Considerateness has to flow in both directions. Faithfulness has to flow in both directions. And it will speak out for itself if those things don't materialize. That's the considerate ego. Now, I recognize that some of us might be feeling a little uneasy right here, okay? And maybe you just don't, you feel a little fearful. You're like, wow, how do I get that balance in my life? I mean, it's not easy to maintain, and it's not. It might feel risky. It might even feel wrong to some of you. You might disagree with me, and that's fine. We're going to continue talking. So let me press on and bring in a passage from the Bible, okay? This is from Paul's first letter to the church in Corinth. Paul was an early-day Christian, went around um, the Near East, like, building churches and writing letters to churches, which we still have in the Bible. And in this letter to the church in Corinth, he's talking about church unity and how each person in this church brings something very special to the body, which is the word he uses to represent the church. And um, I, do, I think it would be a real mistake to think of this passage as only applying to the church, okay? Uh, what Paul is saying here is absolutely revolutionary. It was, it was incredibly revolutionary for the time that he was writing um, for, where there were far more wars than there are today. Um, and, but it's still revolutionary today, and I think the church has been at its most attractive and most powerful and helpful when it models the sort of revolutionary freedom that God gives us um, in our, when we have faith. And so, yes, while this, this passage is about who gets to do what in church and things like that, it is an incredibly powerful and lasting reminder um, and inspiration for all aspects of our lives, okay? You can take this and apply it all over the place, work, families, everything, okay? So just remember that when Paul talks about the body, he's talking about the church. Here we go. Just as a body, though one, has many parts, but all its parts, many parts form one body, so it is with Christ. For we were all 
baptized by one spirit so as to form one body, whether Jews or Gentiles, slave or free, and we were all given the one spirit to drink. Even so, the body is not made up of one part, but of many. Now, if the foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I do not belong to the body, it would not for that reason stop being part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I do not belong to the body, it would not for that reason stop being part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the sense of hearing be? If the whole body were an ear, where would the sense of smell be? But in fact, God has placed the parts in the body, every one of them, just as he wanted them to be. If they were all one part, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, but one body. Cool passage, right? Um, and there's a lot here for us as we discuss this concept of the considerate ego. I want to start with this section. Paul says this, For we were all baptized by one spirit so as to form one body, whether Jews or Gentiles, slave or free, and we were all given the one spirit to drink. Even so, the body is not made up of one part, but of many. And I think this is like what I would call Paul at his jujitsu best. Like he hits you with one punch and you're like, oh, and then he gets you with another. And he's saying, you know, like he has this incredibly important point, which is powerfully stated in great sort of Paul language. He says, yes, the walls have come down. The Jews and the Gentiles, the slaves and the non-slaves, you're all together in this church as one. And you've all been baptized with this, you know, the Holy Spirit, which is an incredible blessing from God. And you all have it, and we're all here together as one. And that is Paul doing his unity talk, okay? This is his coming together talk. This is God tearing down barriers talk, and it's absolutely wonderful. And yet, just as we're taking that in, Paul goes boom with this other fist, and he's saying, look, despite all that, we remain distinct beings. So you're not this smush, you're not this mushed up, blended kind of church. You're all in this together, but each of you are distinct beings. He says this, even so, that's his but, even so, the body is not made up of one part of, but of many. And I think what Paul is saying is something really fresh and perceptive here. He's noticing, I think, as he's gone around and looked at all the churches he's building, particularly there's one in Corinth, and he's looked at how things happen when all these people that never used to hang out with each other suddenly start coming together on equal terms in these new churches. He's noticing something very special is happening. He's noticing that as God brings down those walls, we're actually freed up as individuals to embrace our identity and work. Okay, so community life does not trample on ego, it enhances it. And that's, that's something pretty amazing, I think. I mean, I've seen that in my own life. I've seen people become, you know, get faith, and suddenly they start to gain their stride. They start to be the person that God wanted them to be. They start to, like, you know, just fulfill their identities, and it's a wonderful thing to watch. And Paul also goes, goes on to say that our membership of this group is crucial to the group, okay? Even if we don't realize our importance, we remain important. You know, perhaps we remain, you know, we, we, he'll, we stay there, we stay important, we're integral to the group, even when we don't take ourselves seriously. He says that here. Now, if the foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I don't belong to the body, it would not for that reason... <laughs> It would not, for that reason, stop being part of the body. And so what, you know, so what Paul is saying is like, you know, don't think of yourself as like a little foot. No, you're the foot, okay? You have standing and purpose. 
That's not going anywhere. That remains. You can choose. You can choose not to embrace who you are as the foot. You know, you can still think of yourself as this thing that just exists at the bottom of the leg and isn't much use. I mean, actually, the foot's an amazing thing. Do you ever sort of know how many bones are in the foot? It's like an enormous amount. It's like, and when your foot goes wrong, you're like, wow, I really need that foot. Um, but, um, but what Paul is saying is that, like, see a podiatrist. No, he's saying, like, you remain important all through that period where you don't think you're important. And he wants you, he wants you to know that because he wants you to embrace your importance. And that's kind of really reassuring, I think. And then he pans out. And he shows us why we're individuals, why individuality is important, okay, uh, within this sort of unity. Um, it's because the only way that mankind or the universe or a church or anything can ever really move forward in a true way is if all the people who are in this thing see each other as important and of worth, right? We can only sort of move forward in life. There's almost no progress with certain things like in church or families or marriage or whatever if we don't recognize each other's value. Paul says that here. If the whole body were an eye, where would the sense of hearing be? If the whole body were an ear, where would the sense of smell be? But in fact, God has placed the parts in the body, every one of them, just as he wanted them to be. And I think that last part, just as he wanted them to be, puts a spotlight on how we put this all into practice, okay? It tells us that this is possible, that God um, is, is really keen for this to work, okay? It tells us that, you know, just as God wanted them to be, this, this line tells us that there's some sort of pre-existing momentum that God has already got going as we step onto this train, okay? We're, this, this thing is already moving. The kingdom of God is already progressing, and... God, you know, he's, he's got this plan, he's got this vision for this sort of incredible warless life, and we just sort of have to step onto it. And then it starts to like, you know, like, you know, happen in big ways. And that should take some of the fear out of, and, and the risk out of building a considerate ego, I think. You know, when I see a line like this, God has placed the parts in the body, every one of them, just as he wanted them to be, it speaks truth to my egotistical characteristics, my egotistical side, right? I mean, when I see that, I'm like, I'm like, yeah, I can now see the futility of being egotistical. I mean, if, if I always want to win, that's such a foolish battle. Do you know what I mean? If I always want to be first, it's like such a pointless battle because God has already set things up for kind of everybody to win. He's making things happen on that front. And that's kind of really amazing. And so do I really want to walk into this wonderful thing that God's doing and start declaring myself as the most important thing? I mean, do I really want to walk into this body and say, look, it's me, it's the ear. I'm here, everybody. I'm the ear. You need me. I mean, if you walk out into the street in New York City, how much is the nose going to help? You're going to need the ear, aren't you? I mean, it just feels odd to sort of put yourself forward like that when you have a vision like that from God. It seems sort of ludicrous. And that line also tells um, the egotistical side of our natures to just chill out, right? Doesn't it? It says, like, calm down. You don't need to be so assertive. You don't need to take so much oxygen out of the room. You're going to be heard. 
you are the ear. You are important. You will hear things. You know, you, you will get stuff that everybody else needs, and you'll be able to share them, and everyone will be great. Thank you. And that should be enough, and it is enough. And um, by the way, everybody else is having the same fun, so chill out. And as we sort of take that sort of way of life in from God, um, you know, the egotistical nature starts to sort of get eroded, and that's a good thing. Um, yeah. And then what about the self-denier or the habitual accommodator? I mean, this line also speaks truth to us, to that part of us, you know, where it says God has placed the parts in the body, every one of them, just as he has wanted them to be. Um, I think it's that, that subclause there, every one of them. That, that speaks to us. That's like you're noticed. You're important. You know, maybe, maybe we find ourselves in relationships where we don't speak out enough because we grew up in a house of egotists where we were always drowned out. And we've always struggled to find a clear voice ever since then that represents your interest. Maybe, we, maybe we're also frightened of being left alone. Maybe we don't speak out because we think the other person that we're always serving will leave us and we'll be lonely. Speak out, nonetheless, speak out. You know, Paul says, every one of them, Every one of them, and that includes us, the people who, you know, every single one of us. And God knows. He sees exactly what's happening in our lives. He's working with us in ways that will constantly help us embrace our worth and our sense of identity, and he'll give power to our voices. He'll give us courage when we need that courage to, to, to say that our needs to be taken seriously, and he will materialize. He'll show up. He'll give you what you need in the moment when you're having those tough conversations. He's always working towards that, and that's a good thing because there will be breakthroughs. There will, those imbalances will start to disappear. Okay, so a lot of nettlesome relationship stuff there. Okay, so let me just sort of step back a bit and just make a really important caveat, okay? Um, I agree. We need to not be afraid to tackle the imbalances that we come across in relationships. All that still holds. But what I'm not saying in all of this is that we should always be on guard, okay? That we're not always having this sort of stance where we're looking for people to do the wrong thing or to you know, disrespect us or we shouldn't always be super sensitive to slights or anything like that. I'm just, I'm not talking, that's not what I'm advocating here, obviously. And that would not be wise. It wouldn't be helpful for your relationships. It wouldn't help you in the long run, but it also wouldn't be in the spirit of what God is up to. And our passage tells us that God has started this amazing kind of wallless project that we're involved in and the beauty and power of God's vision should define our lives. That should be the thing that defines our lives, Okay. And we're in this, you know, we're going to feel a lot more open-armed, vulnerable. We're going to be a lot more positive, And the Holy Spirit will help us be like that. And, you know, he'll just take us uh, along that road. But, and I'm going to say this again, within that life, from my experience and what I, you know, have learned and seen and, you know, what I think is in the Bible ultimately, is that God expects us to be individuals to speak up for ourselves when we need to and take ourselves seriously, and take other people seriously as we live out this great vision from God. You see that? There is, the two things can coexist, right? Okay. So, we've reached the part of the sermon where we give some practical suggestions on how to put into practice some of the things that we've talked about, and I have two practical suggestions today. And the number one is, be aware of when you feel threatened, okay? Um, 
it's inevitable as we go through our days at work and marriage and families and relationships, everything. There's going to be disagreements. There's going to be trouble in our relationships. There just will. I always think it's amusing when you're on the subway and you see like two 80-year-olds arguing. You know, like, you're like, wow, it doesn't end. <laughs> it sounds sort of like the things we argue about. No, but um, anyway, what I'm trying to say is that when that happens, and it will happen, it really helps to have a proportionate reaction to things, okay? When we overreact, and we will, uh, it, it can upset our relationships, okay? It can... Um, create more tension than there needs to be. It makes it harder to come together again afterwards. And, and we're very good at finding reasons for the re- overreaction we had, aren't we? We're like, yeah, but he disrespected me. Oh, it wasn't fair. He shouldn't have treated that other person like that. Or, oh, I just had it with that person. Or he's just dumb. Or something like that. And you can always find sort of reactions, re- uh, justifications for sort of overreacting. But what's really going on a lot of the time is that we feel threatened. Okay, we feel threatened in some way. And it helps us to be really aware of when we're threatened and why we're threatened. Okay? Because then we can step back. We can say, okay, okay, I'm feeling threatened. It's something about this is making me feel under threat. Um, okay, that's a very dangerous situation for me to be in. I often overreact when that happens. So I'm going to step right back. I'm going to just chill out and create space for the Holy Spirit to come and just help me you know, reinforce my ego so I can speak what I think is necessary, but do it in a way that I respect that other person too. So that's kind of the reaction we want. But if we can do it much better, I think, if we know that we feel threatened, because then we don't make it about something else, which will always make it much more tempting to overreact. But okay, I feel threatened. I'm going to react proportionally. And, you know, over the years, I've sort of learned that, like, if I've had an intellectual disagreement with somebody... um, you know, it could just be something really kind of boring, you know, sort of arcane. But, like, someone disagrees with me, and I'm like, well, do they think I'm, you know, like, just, and it would, like, get my hackles up, and I'd start, like, wanting to fight back and everything. And really, I was just, like, thinking I feel threatened. They're, they're questioning my brain, you know, my standing. And then, like, you know, my reaction would be way out of line with what it should be. Um, but now, like, maybe just years of being married or just growing up, you know, whatever, being in your 50s, I don't know, um, you feel like, so what? You know, they, it doesn't matter if they disagree with me, and I don't care if they don't agree with me. I mean, like, you switch off and move on, you know, and I think that's a much better place to be. And it really helps to get there if you know when you feel threatened. My second practical suggestion is this, okay? Um, bring your day-to-day struggles into the wonderful narrative of your life with God, Okay? And this part, I just want to use this to bring everything we've been talking about together in a way that will allow us to do it that is not only effective, but also kind of uplifting as we do it, all right? I mean, that's what's special about faith in Jesus is that we have all these struggles, we have all these challenges in life, um, and, you know, Jesus is part of them. And his being part of them actually creates this sort of uplifting existence where we can actually rise to the challenge of things and in some strange way kind of enjoy embracing our difficulties, okay? I mean, that sounds kind of stupid if you have serious difficulties, but, but like in the long run, I mean, you know, that's the promise of faith is that, the, that, that, that living without God, you know, you're just going to be fighting this on your own, but with God, there's all these new possibilities open up. And 
this is how I would put it all together, okay? I've noticed, and this is where I'm at with this, and it's been helpful for me to think about it when writing this sermon, to be able to sort of clarify it in my own head, is that we have all sorts of good things going on in our lives with regards to faith, right? We have the Bible, we love to read that, we have church, we love to come here and hang out with our friends, you know, you know groups that we're part of, we have, um, you know, people we rely on, we have the Holy Spirit who, you know, makes everything so much greater than, you know, it could be on its own. And then we get to sort of have our families and our jobs and things like that. And if you put them all together, they create this sort of incredible story of our life, okay? This kind of narrative going on. But the point I want to make is there's so much there within this narrative. So like, you know, tomorrow morning, say you wake up and you've already got an email and you have that feeling like, oh, I don't believe that I have to do this thing again. Or I can't believe I have to fly there. Ugh. I didn't want this because I wanted to do that, and now I know my job sucks even more than I thought it did. Do you know what I mean? Like, you get that thud email on a Monday morning, and you're like, you know, like, what do you do? I mean, what I found is at moments like this is that we have this panoply of things that we can plug into. We have maybe something we read in the Bible on Saturday, or a chat we had with somebody from church on Sunday, or maybe it was a worship song we were singing in the shower, or maybe it was some, just a random co- conversation we had somebody on the street, and the Holy Spirit is active in all these different areas, and he'll pull down the things that we need and bring them to us in such a way that we'll feel inspired and uplifted and be able to go ahead with that task. And that's the sort of magic of faith. And, it, and, and the reason why it's, 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 another reason why it's great is it's like it keeps going. It's like an unfolding narrative, and it's so rich. Every plot line is continuing to unfold. And so what that means is that when we have these struggles, when we have these relationship issues, when we realize that we're being egotistical in this sort of repetitive way or way too accommodating in this area in our relationship, we, we don't have to feel afraid to bring it into faith. Faith is big enough. This narrative is big enough to deal with these problems. And we can bring absolutely anything to God. And we can bring absolutely anything to our trusted friends and just talk about them and get them fixed and get them worked out. And that exists because it's all brought together by the Holy Spirit in this life of faith. And that happens every day. And it will continue happening every day of our lives. And I really encourage you to plug into that. Just plug into that, plug into that, and just ask God for more stuff in it, and it will keep materializing. He's always there. The Holy Spirit is always there. Okay? Can I pray for us? So, Holy Spirit, I've been talking about you a lot, and I'm glad that you're here, and it's great to know that you're on our side, and that you have these great, you know, plot lines for our life. And I just pray that every single person here today would now feel a really strong sense of, of worth and that their identity would feel like it, it totally deserves to exist and that they have standing. And I pray now that, you know, if anyone's dealing with, you know, like feeling, having very low self-esteem, I pray that you would lift those people up and do all the repairing that you need. And I also pray for our egotistical sides. I pray that you would show us why that's ultimately futile and that we would come to, that we would come to you, Lord, as people just wanting to have the fullest life possible and being open to anything you suggest. In Jesus' name, amen.